their ballpark. No matter which scholar you uh, consult on these dates and everything like that, there's a real uh, difference of opinion, but they're all basically in the same range. So don't nail any of these dates down exact. For example, the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Those dates vary from anywhere from 27 AD through 33 AD generally. So I don't, uh, I'm not going to wrestle or argue on this particular tape as to which dates are correct and which ones aren't. I have my opinions, but I'm using basically a consensus, something uh, middle of the road kind of. If it's off by a, a year or two one way or the other, that's really not that important. I want you to catch a, the su sequence of this and to get a feel and to get a, uh, a handle on this generation after the ascension of Jesus Christ. I want you to be able to really almost be able to live there, to really understand what, what God was doing in this particular generation. Picture yourself, uh, to give an idea of, of the kind of time we're talking about, Picture the time period from roughly World War II, the end of World War II, to the present age. That's basically the time period that we're, we're talking about, you know, in, in terms of getting a feel for how long a period we're dealing here with. Okay, in 30 AD, roughly, again, is the crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Within a year or two of that, Stephen is stoned, and the saints are scattered. At that time, the Holy Spirit came upon people, and Pentecost came forth. Roughly around 32 AD, Philip preached in Samaria, and the Ethiopic uh, eunuch was converted. Around 33 AD, we have Saul's conversion, who became Paul. Immediately, he went to Arabia for a number of years. There's a debate as to uh, how many years he was gone. In this particular account that I'm giving here, uh, in around 36, 37 AD, Saul made his first journey to Jerusalem, and then he went and returned back to Tarsus for uh, a period of time. There are other people that have a slightly different uh, feeling on that. Okay, around 37-30 AD, Peter raised Dorcas. 38-39, we have the, the first appearance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon a Gentile's house, the house of Cornelius, around 38-39 AD. Try to grab a hold of how many years away from the crucifixion these things occurred. That'll give you a little bit of an idea of the flow of the events that we're talking about here. In 41 AD, Barnabas was sent to Antioch. In 42-43 AD, Paul and Barnabas join at Antioch. About this same period of time, around 42 AD, James the Apostle is martyred. About 44 A.D., Paul and Barnabas deliver a contribution uh, to Judea, you know, of food and things like that. Okay, around 44 A.D., somewhere in that reign, uh, Agabus, the prophet, predicts a famine in the whole region. 
Around 45 AD, Paul's first missionary begins, and he goes to places like Cyprus, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Around 48 AD, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch. In that same year, they had a conflict with Judaizing teachers. And around this time, around 4950 AD, in this area, there begins to be, Paul is beginning to grab a hold of a gospel and beginning to grab a hold of something that is very different and very unlike what the church in Jerusalem has been preaching. The church in Jerusalem, remember, always stayed under the law. It never departed from being under the law through this entire period. In the Jerusalem conference in 4950 AD, somewhere around there, they agreed to uh, only put four things upon the, the Gentiles at that period of time. But after this conference in Jerusalem, things still never worked out right. There was still constantly a conflict between Jews that stayed under the law and this thing by grace through faith that Paul was beginning to preach uh, very strongly to Gentiles. And it's very clear that Paul, in the end, especially in Galatians and in various places like that, he says the law is done away with. It is passing away even now. There is a new creation. Forget the old genealogies that which the law made you uh, stay under. It's no longer by genealogy. It's no longer by blood. It's no longer uh, being grafted into the tree of Israel. It's a new creation. And Paul is beginning to strongly and radically preach a doctrine, which in the end ultimately would cause him to say, by the time he was finished, they've all forsaken me. No one is, is staying with me. You have to understand that Paul was writing all these things and was fighting this fight through this whole period of time while the temple was still in effect, while the Levitical system was still offering up sacrifices, while Jerusalem was still the, the capital of, uh, of the, uh, the people of God, and while uh, Israel was still a very favored nation among the Gentile nations, they were still offering up sacrifices for the emperor through this period of time. And so Paul's gospel, while he's saying there's coming an end to the law, there's coming a destruction right on the horizon, in 4950 A.D., James, the brother of, of, uh, of Jesus, and how he ever got to be the head of the church is kind of a strange mystery because uh, Jesus never predicted that, that his half-brother would, would ever have anything to do with the church. But here he is now all of a sudden, a blood relative. Understand what I'm talking about? Blood relative now all of a sudden is the head of the church in Jerusalem. And... Uh, uh, so anyway, let, let me, I'm kind of sidetracking here. Let me get back to the chronology here. Around 50, Paul begins his second missionary journey. And maybe at that time he might deliver uh, the epistle to uh, Galatia. Um, uh, in around 51, Paul would find himself in Europe, maybe at uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. Um, Around 52, 53, 54, somewhere in there, he may have written the epistles 
1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Paul, in around 53, uh, would be journeying to Ephesus, Jerusalem, Antioch, and uh, at that same time he'd begin his third missionary trip, and he would be revisiting Galatia. He'd begin his work in uh, Ephesus, around 54. Maybe somewhere around 55-56 he would be writing the letter to the Galatians. In 57 or 56, he'd be visiting Troas, Macedonia, Achaia. At that time, he'd probably be writing First uh, and Second Corinthians. In 57, Paul winters in Corinth. And uh, at that same time, he, he journeys to Jerusalem with a contribution. He may write the book uh, to the Romans at that particular time. Around 58, Paul is mobbed in Jerusalem, and his imprisonment uh, in Caesarea begins. He's imprisoned for a couple of years in Caesarea. Around 60, Paul appeals to Caesar before Festus. Around 61, he begins his journey to Rome, and uh, at that point after that uh, is Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Around that same period, uh, around 62 thereabouts, uh, the, the apostle or the uh, uh, brother of Jesus, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, is martyred. Um, around 62, Paul is released from his Roman uh, prison. And at this point, Paul writes his great letters, the ones that really teach sonship, that really talk about a new creation, that really talk about the salvation of all. Um, very powerful, powerful um, letters. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians are those three main ones that I'm talking about. He may also be writing a Philemon at that particular time. Um, at this particular time, uh, Acts and Hebrews might have been written around 62, 63, somewhere around there. 63, Paul begins his final missionary journey uh, to Crete, possibly Jerusalem, Asia. He leaves Timothy in Ephesus. Around 64, he'd be in Macedonia and Achaia. At that same period of time, uh, Rome becomes goes under fire. Many historians believe that Nehru, uh, who was Caesar at that time, started the city, started the fire himself, because he wanted to burn this old city down, because he, you know, uh, Nehru was a real, uh, well, first of all, he was bizarre and very strange, uh, probably bisexual, homosexual, and everything other sexual. Um, he was a sick person, and uh, he was really into the arts, and he really was into glorifying himself as just the greatest thing that ever walked the face of the earth. And he probably destroyed Rome so that he could rebuild it because he was really into, you know, he felt that he was a tremendous uh, artistically oriented kind of person. Um, around that period of time, uh, maybe first and sec first Peter might have been written, Titus, first Timothy, uh, the letters of John, second Peter, Jude, second Timothy, maybe around 65, 66, the book of Revelation was written. There's a, two different opinions on the book of Revelation. Some believe that uh, Paul or John wrote it uh, at the end of the uh, first century, around 96 A.D., after the destruction of Jerusalem. That's one school of thought. And then the other school of thought, of which 
I'm pretty much hold is that all the Bible was written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. And so the book of Revelation was probably written prior to the beginning of the Roman Jewish war in 66. So it was probably written in 64, 65 AD. In 66, the beginning of the outbreak of the Roman Jewish war begins. Vespasian's uh, comes in, the emperor, or the, 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 the general of the Roman army comes in and begins his campaign, campaign up in uh, Galilee. Um, in 69, Titus is sent in to complete the, uh, the war. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem is utterly, completely destroyed. And in 73 AD is the fall of, uh, of Masada. It was a, uh, uh, um, a fortress on a, uh, a hill quite some distance away from Jerusalem in which a, a sect called the Sicarii, uh, the dagger people, uh, they and their family hid out in that particular thing. And uh, there was a siege laid against it by the Roman army. And finally, on the eve of Passover in 73, the Romans came in to, to uh, wipe them out and they committed mass suicide the eve before the eve before Passover. 960 people were killed. A couple of women and I think uh, two or three children survived the the uh, massacre. The Jim Jones of uh, of 73 A.D. and uh, and they lived to tell the story of what went on. Before leaving this tape, I want to bring a, out a, little, a few tidbits of information about this period of time that Jesus Christ was born into. Remember the scripture says that uh, in the fullness of time Christ was born. Well, that fullness of time can refer to uh, the prophetic uh, events that would would come in the fullness of, of when Daniel and, and the other prophets said that they would, could come in. Uh, the end of that 70 weeks was around right around the time of Jesus' birth. But in addition to that, the, uh, if you take a look at the, uh, the political and religious system of Rome and Jerusalem, it was also a fullness of time. Rome had conquered all of the uh, civilizations around the Mediterranean basin from Egypt to uh, Parth Parthian, uh, you know, near Babylon, to, to Spain, up, to, up into Germany. There was one empire, and one man truly ruled it. We talk about in, in these end times that there would be a one-world uh, government and one-world religious system and one-world economic system. Well, in, in Rome's day, that pretty much was the case. Caesar was, in fact, uh, Lord. He was total, absolute dictator. And what he said went for that entire region. It's ironic and strange that um, in 2 BC, which was probably the year that Jesus, Jesus was born in, the Romans declared a silver jubilee. The golden age had arrived and peace was truly on earth. And uh, obviously that peace didn't last very long, but they were absolutely convinced that with the, the, the governmental structure that they had, the, uh, the, the religious structure that they had, there would truly be total peace on earth. See, under that structure, 
Um, there was one government. The first god to the Romans was their government. Loyalty to the state was their ultimate paramount religion. And underneath that religion, loyalty to the state, loyalty to Caesar, loyalty to the head of this empire, underneath that, you could believe religiously just about everything that you wanted to as long as it conformed to and was brought under loyalty to Caesar and loyalty to the state. Rome had thousands of gods, and provided you didn't believe in something that would disrupt the, the civil order of the Roman Empire, you could pretty much believe whatever you wanted to. Okay, we were talking on tape two about how, you know, many of the uh, end-time prophets of today, the ones that write the pre-trib rapture books and, and are full of uh, the airwaves and the, and the TV uh, waves, you know, you've, you've heard the story, Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, uh, Billy Graham, and all of the main uh, evangelists seem to be preaching this thing. They talk about a one-world government. Well, in the period that we're talking about here in 70 AD, we had a one-world government. You have to understand, the world that the Bible was referring to was wherever the Jew was. And the Jew was scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The Jew was not in South America. The Jew was not in Australia. The Jew was not in China. The Jew was scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin. And as far as the Bible is concerned, that is the world, that is the heaven in which the Bible was confined to. And you have to understand, you know, when, when, uh, when the apostles said the wor word went out into all the world, it was not saying that at that time the word went out to uh, China. It did not go out to China, and it did not go to South America. It went to every single place that there was a Jew. And at that period of time, there was Jewish synagogues scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus said that he only came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and the lost sheep of the house of Israel were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And in that generation, and Jesus said that you would not go through the, all the cities of, of Israel before the Son of Man comes, but you'll find that in that 40-year period from 30 to 70 AD, the gospel truly went out to every Jewish community within the Roman Empire. And I believe that that story... Of, of, of how the word went out to Israel in the Roman Empire is a little a story within a story. It's a tiny little example of, of what God was going to do on a bigger scale with the rest of the world. And that's why I believe it's vitally important that we discover the end of the Jewish age. The end of that age or the end of that world and the end of those heavens, because I believe when Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, he was referring not to the physical heavens and he was not referring to the physical earth. He was referring to the political and religious powers, the stars up in the heavens, those that ordained the fate of, of the people below. Those heavens would pass away. 
and those uh, structures beneath them, the people, and, and the way they connected and associated with the leadership, government and religious, would radically change in the generation that Jesus was speaking to. And if you take a look at what happened in 70 AD, Jesus' uh, prophecy came true word for word, line for line, not one jot or one tittle was removed until all the things that Jesus predicted were in fact fulfilled. So, you know, with this one world uh, government, this one world religion, the, the, the Roman Empire, they had within their own structure, they had thousands and thousands of gods. And you could say, you know, in, in that sense, there were many religions. The Samaritans brought in their own religions. The Babylonians brought in their, their own religions. You had the Mith Mithraic religions. You had the, uh, the Gnostics in their different forms of religion. You had the, uh, the mystery religions. You had the, the, the Teutonic stuff coming in from the Germanic tribes that were hired as, uh, as part of the military. And Rome really didn't care. They didn't care what statue you bowed down to, provided you put Caesar above them all. And so you truly did have a one-world religion, with the exception of a bunch of stiff-necked Jews and the clash between Rome and Israel, I believe, was this. It was whether politics, loyalty to the state, as a religion superseded loyalty to your religion first. In other words, the Jews had religion first, government second, and Rome had loyalty to the state and conformity to its laws and its rules and its creeds first and religion second. And I believe that flip-flop between the two is what ultimately caused war between um, Israel and, and, uh, and Rome in 66 AD. And also uh, it, it caused another conflict uh, quite a few years after that, and I think around 133 to 135 AD was another major uh, Jewish revolt. Now, to me, for those uh, of you who, have, who are seeing this whole thing by the Spirit, I think you're going to see many, many similarities between the government of, uh, of that particular time, the religious environment of that particular time, the whole spirit of, of the people in Rome and the spirit in Israel. Um, many people don't realize, but the, the governmental structures of the Western world are almost carbon copies of the Roman structure at that time. Today we live in a truly a Greco-Roman world. Not only the government, but the arts and the, and the, uh, and the uh, sciences uh, that we have today, the, the governmental structures. If you go to first century Rome uh, and you take a look at the Senate or you take a look at uh, the, uh, the philo philosophical parties, or you take a look at the societies, you take a look at, at the aristoc arist aristocratic um, um, leadership and, and the little groups that they had, you're going to find that in the United States and in Britain and most of the Western world, uh, you have a almost a carbon copy. 
Now, beginning with uh, Alexander the Great in, in around the 4th century BC, he went and conquered Babylon, and he intermarried many of his soldiers and whatnot with, with those people to Hellenize and to bring, uh, that, to bring Babylon into a Hellenistic culture. But in fact, what happened was just the reverse of that. Uh, from that period of time forward, many of those, uh, the Babylonians and the Persians, uh, came into the uh, Roman, uh, Greco-Roman structure as slaves and as, as merchants, uh, traders, and things like that. And they brought their gods with them. So at the time of, uh, of Alex, uh, from Alexander uh, through uh, the, the Roman empires, emperors there, the, the, the Eastern uh, dual uh, system of religion, the astrology, the fire worship, worshiping the sun, uh, the dividing God into two, the good God and the bad God, those structures entered into the Roman system around the time of Christ and a little bit before that. Today we have the same thing happening in the Western world. The, the Eastern religions are, are invading the Western world in a big-time way. I was, it, it kind of blew me away that uh, recently I saw a, uh, a National Guard uh, center here recently, and their battalion emblem was a yin-yang symbol, you know, the, the black and the white uh, little, uh, little characters uh, with an eyeball on it, you know, circle with, with the, this yin-yang thing. It just kind of blew me away. I remember in Washington, D.C., in Chinatown, they put in this huge multi-million dollar golden gate. It was a religious thing with dragons on it and whatnot in, 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 in Washington, D.C. Our, our, the Western world right now is in being invaded in a big-time way uh, ever since the 50s and 60s and 70s. The, uh, the, the hippie movement, uh, we brought in the Hare Krishnas and, uh, and all of these, uh, these Eastern religions. So the Western world uh, is in almost a prime situation right now to, to look almost exactly the way the Roman Empire looked uh, 1900 and some odd years ago. Now at this portion of the teaching we're going to begin to go into all of those scriptures that we started this series with and we're going to see and take a look at how they were fulfilled in this generation that Jesus said would not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. I want to start it off by reading a couple of pages from a little booklet that I have here called Have Heaven and Earth Passed Away by a uh, pastor, Don K. Preston. He has a, a section in there entitled Defining Heaven and Earth. And I just want to read a couple pages out of this booklet before we get, get into all of these scriptures that we talked about at the beginning uh, of tape number one. He says, sadly, many Bible students are unfamiliar with the apocalyptic and figurative language of the Bible. So many people like to say, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. They seem to be saying there is no such thing as figurative or spiritual language. This is sad because a lot of the Bible is symbolic language. The term heaven and earth is a good example. We are not saying the term heaven and earth never refers to material cre creation. We are saying this term is very often used figuratively. Remember, Jesus was a Jew, 
as such, he was, raised, he was raised hearing the Old Testament prophets taught in the synagogues. These prophets utilized spiritual language. As the prophet of and to Israel, Jesus was not only familiar with the language of the prophets, he used the same language. How did the prophets use the term heaven and earth? The prophet Isaiah predicted the passing of heaven and earth in chapter 24. He said the earth would be utterly broken down, clean, dissolved, and completely removed in verse 19. Now this sounds like a destruction of material creation, but closer examination reveals it to be speaking of the destruction of Israel's covenant world under the imagery of heaven and earth. Note verse number 5 gives the reason for the destruction. Quote, they have broken the everlasting covenant. End quote. What covenant was that? It was the Mosaic covenant. God was going to destroy, quote, heaven and earth because Israel had broken her covenant with Yahweh. Are we to believe that one day the universe will be destroyed because Israel broke her covenant? A dilemma is created for the literal interpretation of the text when we come to verse 22. In these verses, God is depicted as dwelling gloriously on Mount Zion, that is, in Jerusalem, after the destruction of heaven and earth. Reader, if the earth has been destroyed, how could literal Mount Zion still exist? We believe the best explanation is to see Isaiah predicting the destruction of Israel's covenant heaven and earth because she had violated the Mosaic covenant with Yahweh. As a result, God's righteousness would remain in a new Zion, in a new covenant of heaven and earth. Another example of heaven and earth being referent to the covenant world of Israel and not literal creation is in Isaiah 51, verse 16. It reads this way in the New American Standard Version, quote, I have put my word in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. Unfortunately, the NIV incorrectly translates that verse, so you need to check several other translations to catch this. The New American Standard Version is a good one. Now, what's the point? Note that God is speaking to Israel. He says he gave them his law, the Mosaic Covenant, the same law Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, to establish heaven and to lay the foundation of the earth. Clearly, Yahweh is not saying he gave the Mosaic Covenant to Israel to create a literal heaven and a literal earth. Material creation existed long before Israel was ever given the Mosaic Covenant. The meaning of the verse is that Yahweh gave his covenant with Israel to create their world, a covenant world with Yahweh. God created Israel's heaven and earth by giving them his covenant. Now, if he destroyed that old covenant, heaven and earth, and gave a new covenant, would he not thereby be creating new heavens and new earth? That is precisely the thought of the new covenant scriptures. Old Israel's covenant was about to pass away, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. The new covenant of Christ was being given, Ephesians 3.3, Hebrews 2.1. Since the giving of covenant created heaven and earth, the new heaven and earth of Christ would not be completed until the new covenant was completely revealed. It therefore follows that if the new heavens and earth of Christ has not arrived, then Christ's new covenant had not, had, has not yet been fully revealed. If Christ's new covenant has been fully revealed, then the new heaven and new earth has fully come. Consider this carefully in the light of 2 Peter chapter 3 and Revelation 21 verse 22. Passages written in the process of revealing the new covenant was yet incomplete. In Isaiah 51 verses 5 and 6, God predicted the new heavens and earth would vanish. This is the same heaven and earth he had established at Sinai. This is not a prediction of the passing of literal heaven and earth. It is a prediction of the passing of the old world of Israel, so that the new covenant world of Messiah would be established. We believe this heaven and earth that Isaiah said would perish is the same heaven and earth Jesus said must pass before the old law would pass. Isaiah 65, 66 also predict the passing of heaven and earth. But as with the other prophecies noted above, it does not refer to the passing of physical creation. In chapter 65, God predicted that Israel would fill the measure of her sin, verse 7. He would destroy them, verse 8 through 15. Create a new people with a new name, verse 6, 15 and 16. Create a new heaven and earth with a new Jerusalem, verses 17 through 19. The creation of the new heavens and earth would follow the destruction of the Jews after they had filled the measure of their sins and had been destroyed at the coming of the Lord in fire with his angels, Isaiah 66:15. The new creation of Isaiah 66 is depicted as a time of evangelism and Jew and Gentile being brought together under the banner of God. Verses 19. Now, Isaiah 65 said the new creation would come when Israel had filled the measure of her sin and was destroyed. Do we have any clue as to when this was going to happen? In Matthew 23, verses 31 through 39, Jesus said Israel would fill up the measure of her sins in his creation. In chapter 24, he predicted the passing of Israel's heaven and earth at his coming, coming verses 29 through 36. Now notice this. Isaiah said Israel's old heaven and earth would not be destroyed until Israel had filled up her sin. Second point, the new heaven and earth would not come until Israel's old heaven and earth was destroyed. Third point, Jesus said Israel would fill up the measure of her sin and be destroyed at his coming in his generation. Fourth point, therefore Israel's heaven and earth was destroyed at Jesus' coming against Israel when the measure of her sin was full in that generation. In Matthew 24, Jesus predicted the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem. This temple was the very center of the Jewish world. 
This is where the sacrifices for sin were offered by the genealogically confirmed Levitical priests. For Jesus to predict the utter desolation of this temple was the same as saying their world was about to come crashing down around their ears. In graphic detail, Jesus chronicled the events to occur before that disaster and the signs indicating its eminences in verses 14 and 15. In highly apocalyptic, symbolic language, he describes the fall itself, quote, The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light, and the stars will fall from the skies, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory." End quote. In verses 32 and 33, Jesus said that by heeding the signs, they could know his coming was at hand. In verse 34, he assured them that generation would not pass away before all those things happened. In verse 35, Jesus assured them that what he had said was true. He said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. This verse is Jesus' way of contrasting the old world of Israel that was to perish and his new world that would remain. That old world would surely perish as he had just said, but his world will never pass. In verse 36, Jesus gave a final warning about knowing the time of those events. Although he informed them how to know when the event was eminent and reassured them that it would definitely happen in their generation, he tells them they cannot know the precise day and hour. They must therefore be watchful. Verse 44. Can you see the relationship of Jesus' prediction of the passing of the heavens and earth in Matthew 24 with his statement in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18? In chapter 24, he said their world, symbolized by the temple and city, was to pass away, and he expressed it in the imagery of the passing of heaven and earth. In chapter 5, he had already said that heaven and earth had to pass before the law could pass. We shall see below the perfect correspondence with this idea and Jesus' statement that all of the Old Covenant had to be fulfilled for the law to pass. Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 28 is another text that speaks of the passing of the Old Covenant world with the imagery of the passing of heaven and earth. The writer alludes to the giving of the law at Sinai, remember Isaiah 51, as the shaking of earth. He says God promised to shake not only earth, but heaven also. This shaking signified removing them. Therefore, God was, prom was promising to remove heaven and earth. Why? So that something that could not be removed would remain. Now notice in verse 28, he says they were at the time receiving. They had not already completely received it. It was being received at the time he wrote, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember, if they were receiving an unshakable kingdom, this of necessity means the, quote, heaven and earth was being removed. 
Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verses 35, about the heaven and earth passing, but his word not passing? Jesus' world, then, is unshakable. Hebrews is discussing the shaking of one world and receiving of another unshakable kingdom. Can you see the comparison? Patently, physical heaven and earth was not being removed. But Hebrews was written just a few years before the fall of Jerusalem and the temple. Further, the gospel had been preached for some time declaring the superiority of Christ and the eminent demise of the old world. The old world of Israel was on the verge of destruction. The new world was being delivered. Thus we have another example of the Bible speaking of the passing of heaven and earth when it means the passing of the old world of Israel. What have we seen then? We have seen that both the old and the new covenant predicting the passing of heaven and earth when physical in heaven and earth was not the subject. The world of Israel was the subject. We believe this is precisely what Jesus had in mind in Matthew 5 verses 17 and 18 when he said, quote, until heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law, end quote. Saying that until Israel's world, symbolized by the city and temple, was destroyed, the law would not pass away. And you know, the apostles that followed Jesus, knew him after the flesh, they kept that law right as Paul was preaching a gospel of grace apart from law, the apostles of the circumcision kept the law, jot and tittle, upon themselves as Jews until God utterly destroyed that heaven, that earth, the covenant, and the Mosaic law in 70 A.D. If we Christians could just get a hold of the fact that God wanted to establish the nation of Israel as a priesthood nation to the Gentile, the heathen nation around them, that was his purpose. If you take a look at the beginning of the nation of Israel, they were to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And their light became very, very gross darkness. They became worse than the nations around them. Light, understanding, it was their responsibility to bring them up, to raise them up higher to God. Israel was a second heaven, if you will, a mediator, someone between God and man. That was the call of the nation of, of Israel. And when they failed to give forth the light, when they failed to show the signs when they failed to properly um, represent God, then they were no longer the heavens on earth. And God allowed that heaven to pass away, that he might make a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the church or the ecclesia, the called out ones, we are supposed to be that new light, that new heaven, Are you hearing? Okay, let's go and see exactly how the end of the old heavens and the end of the old earth, how it culminated. 
we're going to use Josephus, a Jewish historian. He was a priest who was captured when uh, when uh, Rome came in to uh, to wipe out the Israel revolt, and they first came in in uh, around 66 A.D. into the uh, Galilee area, of which Josephus was the uh, the commander in chief. His army got wiped out. He lived, and he ended up becoming a historian and uh, a, a confidant of the uh, of the general. And Josephus there predicted that that particular general would become the emperor down the road, and sure enough, he did. So the account that we have of the destruction of Josephus of, of Jerusalem is a man who was a priest. He was from the Hasmonean uh, family, I believe. He was a general in, uh, the, uh, in, a, in the Jewish army. And it is his account of the destruction of Jerusalem, not, uh, you know, some uh, um, disgruntled Roman or something like that. We're talking about a Jew's account of the destruction of the Jewish city, Jerusalem, and its temple. Now, we need to keep in mind here that God, throughout Israel's history, warned Israel what would happen to it through the prophets. John the Baptist came warning the people what was at the door. Jesus came warning what was right at the door. The apostles, all of them, in, throughout the New Testament, were writing, warning, the day is at hand, the Antichrist is upon us. All of these things were warnings to that generation. And we Christians, 1,900 years later, we can't even see the warnings uh, for the time that they were. And we're blind and stupid. And we use those same passages and scriptures to predict warnings to the world. I mean, how foolish. But let me show you some of the warnings that most of us Christians uh, haven't been told that, Je that Josephus recorded. 1900 years ago you can get this information at the at any seminary you can order this book Josephus's War of the Jews from any Christian uh, bookstore so th this hasn't been hidden away under a bushel basket somewhere it's been around all this time let's go into uh, book number six chapter five section three and uh, and we'll read about uh, some supernatural apparitions that occurred just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. This is Josephus' own account. He says, Then again, not many days after the feast, on the 21st of the month of Artemisium, a supernatural apparition was seen, too amazing to believe. What I now, what I am now to relate, I would, I imagine, have been dismissed as imagery had this not been vouched for by eyewitnesses, then followed by subsequent disasters that deserve to be thus signalized. For before sunset, chariots were seen in the sky over the whole country, and armed battalions speeding through the clouds and encircling the cities. Then again, at the feast called Pentecost, when the priests were entering the inner court of the temple by night to perform their usual ministrations, they declared that they were aware first of a violent commotion and, and din, then of a voice as if a host crying, We are departing hence. 
A portent still more alarming had appeared four years before the war at a time when profound peace and prosperity still prevailed in the city. One Jesus, this is not Jesus Christ here, Jesus the son of Ananias, an uncouth peasant, came to the feast at, at which every Jew is expected to put up a tabernacle for God. That's the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way. As he stood in the temple courts, he suddenly began to cry out, quote, A voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and the sanctuary, a voice against the bridegroom and the bride, a voice against the whole people, end quote. Day and night he uttered this cry as he went about all the alleys. Some of the leading citizens, seriously annoyed at these ominous pronouncements, laid hold of the man and beat him savagely. Then he, without uttering a word in his own defense or of the, pro the private information of those who were beating him, persisted in uttering the same warnings as before. Thereupon the magistrates, rightly concluding that some supernatural impulse was responsible for his behavior, took him before the Roman governor. There, although flayed to the bone with scourges, he neither begged for mercy nor shed a tear, but raising in voice, his voice in a most mournful cry, always every stroke, answered every stroke with, Woe, woe to Jerusalem! When Albinus, the governor, asked him who he was and whence he came, why he uttered these cries, he made no reply whatever, but endlessly repeated his dirge over the city, until Albinus released him because he judged him insane. Throughout this time, until the war broke out, he never approached another citizen, nor was he seen talking to any, but daily like a prayer that he had memorized, he re recited his lament, Woe, woe to Jerusalem. He never cursed any of those who beat him for day after day, nor did he thank those who gave him food. His only response to anyone was that melancholy prediction. His voice was heard most of all at the festivals. So for seven years and five months he continued his wail, his voice as strong as ever, and his vigor unabated, till during the siege, after seeing the fulfillment of his foreboding, he was silenced. He was going his rounds, shouting in penetrating tones from the wall, Woe, woe, once more to the city, and the people, and the temple. Then, when he added a last word, and woe to me also, a stone hurled from the ballista struck him, killing him on the spot. Thus, with those same forebodings still upon his lips, he met his end. In uh, Matthew 24, we talked about, uh, or Jesus talked about uh, wars and rumors of wars and false prophets and these kind of things. Well, in uh, uh, Josephus, in Antiquities, which I don't have here, he quotes a, a whole bunch of the various different wars that went on through uh, from 30 to uh, 70 A.D. The book that I have here is Wars, and he does make a reference in Wars, chapter 2, uh, 10.1. Um, let's see. Here's the one that talks about rumors of wars. Caligula ordered to erect his statue in the temple. Uh, Gaius Caesar displayed such insolence at his succession to power that he wished to be thought of and addressed as a god.
he stripped his country of its noblest men and even proceeded to lay sacrilegious hands on Judea. Indeed, he sent Petronius with an army to Jerusalem to install statues of himself in the temple. If the Jews refused them, he was to execute the objectors and to reduce the whole nation to slavery. But God took note of these instructions. As the sequel showed, Petronius, with three legions and a large contingent of Syrian auxiliaries, began a swift march from Antioch, Judea. Some of the Jews disbelieved the, quote, rumors of wars. Others who did, not, who did believe saw no means to defend themselves. Alarm soon became universal, for the army had already reached Ptolemais. Here's an account of uh, some of the various different factions that, uh, that began to rampage all throughout Israel and converge eventually to the city of Jerusalem. One of the groups was uh, called the Sicarii, and uh, then, of course, the Zealots that we're familiar with from the Bible were also another group that ended up having a leader that would uh, eventually come upon Jerusalem and, and help turn it into a bloodbath. But in... Uh, Let's see, uh, we've got uh, Wars, number chapter number 2, book 2, uh, chapter 13, uh, sections 4 through 7. Uh, well, I'll start uh, in uh, a little bit earlier than that. We have a, uh, an indication of the kind of leadership that was going on in, uh, in uh, the form of Rome and some of the things that were going on in Israel, and they pertain specifically to... Uh, false prophets and that kind of thing. As a result of the ex excess of prosperity and wealth, Nehru lost his mind and abuse for good fortune. He did away with his brother, wife, and mother successively, and then his cruelty found flesh, fresh victims among the highest of the nobility. Finally, through his madness, he ended up on the stage and in the theater, but these things are so well known that I will pass over them to turn to events in Jewish history under his reign. Nehru gave the kingdom of little Armenia to Aristobulus, son of Herod, and he annexed Agrippa's kingdom, four cities with their districts, namely Abila and Julia and Perea and Terakea and Tiberias and Galilee. He appointed Felix procurator over the rest of Judea. Felix captured the brigand chief Eliezer, who had been plundering the country for twenty years with many of his men. He sent them as prisoners to Rome, and the brigands whom he crucified and the citizens as their accomplice were too numerous to count. However, when the countryside had been cleared of these rebels, another kind of group sprang up in Jerusalem, the so-called Sicarii who committed numerous murders in broad daylight and in the middle of the city. They used to mingle with the crowd, especially during festivals, carrying short daggers concealed under their clothing, with which they stabbed their opponents. Then when the victims fell, the murderers joined the indignant crowd, and acting inconspicuously, they were never discovered. The first to be assassinated by them was Jonathan the high priest, and after him, many were murdered every day. More terrible than the crimes themselves was the panic they aroused, with everyone as on the battlefield, hourly expecting death. Men watched at a distance for their enemies, and would not trust their friends when they came near them. Yet in spite of their suspicions and precautions, they were murdered. 
Such was the suddenness of the conspirators' attack and their skill in eluding detection. In addition, there was another rebel group with purer hands but wickeder intentions, who did as much damage as the assassins in ruining the well-being of the city. Deceivers and impostors claiming divine inspiration, they fostered revolutionary changes by inciting the mob with frenzied enthusiasm and by leading them into the wilderness under the belief that God would show them omens of freedom there. Thereupon Felix, regarding this as the beginning of a revolt, sent a body of cavalry and heavy-armed infantry and put a number of them to the sword. A greater blow was inflicted on the Jews by the Egyptian false prophet. Arriving in the country, this man, a charlatan who had gained for himself the reputation of a prophet, collected about 30,000 dupes and led them by a circuitous route through the wilderness to the rise called the Mount of Olives. There he was ready to force an entry into Jerusalem, and after overpowering the Roman garrison to assume control of the people, employing his fellow raiders as his bodyguard. However, Felix anticipated his attempt by meeting him with the Roman heavy infantry, the whole population rallying to his defense. The outcome of the ensuing clash was that the Egyptian fled with a handful of men, while most of his followers were killed or captured. The remaining remainder dispersed and stole away stealthily to their respective homes. No sooner had these troubles died down than the inflammation as a sick man's body broke out again in another quarter. The impostors and brigands banding together incited many to revolt, exhorting them to assert their independence. They threatened to kill anyone who submitted willingly to Roman domination and to press, suppress all those who would accept servitude voluntarily. Then, deployed in gangs throughout the country, they looted the houses of the nobles and killed their owners. They set villages on fire, and so all Judea felt the effect of their frenzy, and day by day the fighting blazed more fiercely. In Mark chapter 13, verse 19, if you recall, that was one of the scriptures, uh, and it uh, said basically, For in those days there will be tribulations such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Here are Josephus' own words in the uh, his preamble to his War of the Jews in uh, section number 4. He says, Indeed, I can hardly compare the misfortunes of all other nations since the beginning of time with the calamities that have befallen the Jews. And though we cannot blame a foreign nation for all these mischievouses, it is more than I can do to restrain my grief. Now, if you recall, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were to be that intermediary. They were to be the intercessors for the world. Well, in 66 AD, something happened that... Uh, basically, I think, was the uh, the icing on the cake in terms of them being completely finished as having any kind of intermediary role uh, among the nations. Josephus says in, uh, let's see, I've got here uh, section, uh, book number 2, 17, uh, around 2, says this, Meanwhile, some of the most ardent promoters of war band together and made an assault on a stronghold called Masada and having captured it by stealth, slew the Roman guards and put a garrison of their own in their place. 
At the same time, another incident occurred in the temple. Eliezer, son of Ananias, the high priest, and a very rash young man, then holding the office of captain, persuaded those who officiated at the temple to accept no gift or sacrifice from a foreigner. This action laid the foundation of the war with Rome, for they renounced in consequence the sacrifices offered for Rome and the emperor. The chief priests and the predominant citizens earnestly appealed to them not to abandon the, the, the customary offerings for their rulers, but the priests would not give in. Their number gave them great confidence, backed as they were by the stalwarts of the revolutionary party. But they pinned their faith above all on the authority of the captain, Eliezer. So here is where uh, Israel ceased to offer up sacrifices on behalf of the nations around her. Now the bloodbath that went all, all over Israel, there was just too much to give an account. I'm just going to scatter here and there to show you that just, you know, what happened in Jerusalem and the temple, that was the capstone. But throughout all of Israel and literally throughout the Roman Empire, the Jews were getting uh, slaughtered by the tens of thousands all over the place. And very often it was Jew killing Jew. As in this particular account in book number two, chapter 18, section 4, is an account of a, quote, heroic death of Simon, a Jewish 